crossroads of empires, battleground of the ages, city of peace and of war. This is Jerusalem, where archaeology uncovers the empires of yesterday, where prophecy decodes the headlines of today. This is where history and prophecy come alive. This is Watch Jerusalem. Hello and welcome back to Watch Jerusalem. I'm your host, Brent Noctegal. I'm here in Jerusalem, Israel today. Next week, you'll have Christopher Eames on the show, and he'll be discussing the continuation of his series on the Lost Ten Tribes. So please listen in for that next week. In this world, we are right now seeing the demise of democracy, and those that are decrying it uh, themselves most of the time are at the forefront of this effort. And we're, we're currently witnessing this phenomenon here in Israel, where after three elections without a new government, the current opposition and their megaphones in the media are denouncing the Prime Minister Netanyahu's attempts to retain power as an affront to democracy. It seems that for the left in Israel, Netanyahu's continued tenure in politics at the same time that he is indicted by the Attorney General is an affront to democracy. So too are the repeated comments from his right-wing colleagues against the jurisdiction of the High Court, the Supreme Court. For Netanyahu, as uh, you can see written all the time, he sees in the media and the opposition and amongst the jurists on that High Court, uh, he sees them all as part of a collaborative campaign, a deep state to bring him down at any cost. And really, in truth, there is a simultaneous campaign to bring down Netanyahu by the jurists, by the media, and by the opposition parties, whose only point of cohesion, it seems, is to remove the Prime Minister from power. This anyone but BB campaign that started back in 2015, it continues to this day. In our last program, we discussed that. We talked about the efforts of Barack Obama's State Department that knowingly funded a group that was committed to bringing down Netanyahu's government back then. And this was done, as we covered, by monetary grants from the State Department, which continued up to two days before the election was called. It was done by special favors by the State Department, such as expediting the visas of dozen Israeli Arab mayors to the United States, where they could be instructed in how to best motivate their Arab brothers to come out and vote. Votes, of course, that went overwhelmingly against Netanyahu. And it was also, all of it was carefully crafted by an American organization who co-opted Israelis to be the face of their campaign while directing this fund and the uh, directing the fund and funding the effort from afar. Now, as we learned last week, that effort in 2015 that was unsuccessful, but that was only because Netanyahu's comments on election day, where he said truthfully that the Arabs were coming out in droves and that left-wing NGOs were busing them out to the voting stations. If he didn't say that much. Uh, condemned statement, he would have been out of power five years ago, and Israel today would be fundamentally different than we see it. Now, however, what, what people miss in all of this, and especially what happened in 2015, is that the spirit behind the Anyone But BB campaign has its roots far before 2015, far before Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu took office. And we're going to see that with what we cover today. Really, the, the Prime Minister... Well, the attacks that we see right now, they're not just against the Prime Minister. He is a bulwark against forces that want more than just his head. They really want to destroy the state of Israel and destroy the state of Israel 
from the inside out. And I'm going to talk about that today. I'm going to talk about the radical left's takeover of Israel's judiciary. Now, this is a major subject of discussion in Israel, has been for the past two decades. And it's likely the reason right now that Israel doesn't have a unity government, still. Still in debates between Benny Gantz and Netanyahu. They're still trying to figure it out, whether they can come together to form a government. Why? Why can't they figure it out? Well, two reasons. Uh, two main reasons, at least that's been reported. One of them is that they, we want to, well, Netanyahu wants to see whether Gantz is going to allow him to act on President Trump's peace deal for Israel, which will see sovereignty be extended over large portions of Judea and Samaria almost immediately after the government is formed. And Gantz was against that, and but he looks like he might have conceded somewhat on that. And the second reason why these uh, why there's no coalition government yet or unity government yet is because of appointments relating to the justice minister and the oversight committees that will have a chance to change the makeup of the Supreme Court. The Supreme Court, Netanyahu wants both of these. He wants Gantz's butt out of the, the sovereignty idea over the over the Judea and Samaria, and he wants to ensure that he has power over the judiciary. Now, this second uh, piece is what we're going to be talking about today. If uh, you have the, the ability to control uh, the, who the next, or at least have a big say in who the next uh, members of the Supreme Court in Israel are going to be, you have the chance to really change the, the left-leaning uh, tendencies, the lawless tendencies, really, of the Supreme Court this power that will help bring four new justices into this historically overreaching and left-wing Supreme Court could help tip the balance back to a court with a conservative approach of governance. The Israeli Supreme Court is notoriously activist. It intrudes into areas completely outside its technical jurisdiction. This is a court that the eminent American originalist Justice Robert Bork called the most activist court in the world. And this activism was on display two weeks ago in Israel when the High Court dictated to the Speaker of the Knesset to hold a vote for the removal of his office. And when he refused to kowtow to the court's decision, rather than being a front to the court, he resigned. Now, two weeks have gone by from this time, and in the mass media, uh, they make sure you don't dwell on what happened. It's all corona these days over here. But we need to dwell on what happened two weeks ago. We need to dwell on what happened with the Speaker of the Knesset and what the Supreme Court did. Two weeks ago, Israel almost lost it all. They're not my words, they're the words of Carolyn Glick. She wrote in Israel Hayom on April 3rd, a column entitled Coronavirus Lessons of the Coalition Talks, and she said this. I'm going to quote her at length again, Carolyn Glick. A week ago, Israel almost lost it all. Last week, Israel was on the verge of internal unrest and the chaos, the likes of which we hadn't seen since the 2005 expulsion of 10,000 Israelis from their homes and communities in Gaza and, and northern Samaria. Indeed, the social cleavages that emerged last, since last month's elections foretold an even greater disaster than the crisis we experienced back then. The fact that three former Israeli Defense Force chiefs of general staff were willing to work in concert with the joint Arab list placed a question mark over the future of our society and state. 
The joint Arab list is an alliance of parties that rejects Israel's right to exist. Its members work openly in the Knesset, in the courts, and in the international arena to delegitimize the Jewish people's right to self-determination and to undermine Israel's ability to defend itself from external attack and internal subversion. Blue and White's willingness to work with the alliance called into question the Israeli center-left's commitment to the continued existence of the Jewish state. Then she writes this, the public outcry, their actions provoked, compelled Blue and White Party leader Benny Gantz and his fellow former IDF chief Gabi Ashkenazi uh, reverse course and seek a unity government Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu in the right-wing bloc. By abandoning their coalition with the joint Arab list, Gantz and Ashkenazi prevented large-scale civil unrest, which would have been devastating at any time in the midst of the coronavirus. It would have been disastrous. That's what Carolyn Glick writes. Now, it's amazing to me that she would write such a sensationalist claim. Was Israel really staring at the abyss a couple of weeks ago? And it seems like a sensational claim because uh, the, the media only drives one narrative. But Israel was going to be in an abyss because half of Israel believes that Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu was the target of a collective coup against him by the left, the Arabs, and the judiciary all working together. And the events of two weeks ago prove it. Now, right at the last minute, Gantz backed down and didn't go through with it. But had he gone through with it, the internal fabric of Israel's society would have been ripped apart, and Israel would have almost lost it all. That's what she says, and we can look at these events from two weeks ago. It's important to do that to prove that she's right. Now, Israel's high court was colluding illegally with the left to bring down Netanyahu, and it was exposed to everyone, everyone that's willing to see it, of course. Now, at the center of this was the Speaker of the House Edelstein's uh, decision to resign and what the High Court did in his absence. And I'm going to quote a little bit from Edelstein um, because a lot of there was a lot of false reporting that was taking place at the time and why he resigned and the fact he didn't shut down the Knesset as was reported by the enemies uh, of the state, really. Um, he didn't shut down the Knesset. He kept it open. There were some things that needed to take place, of course. But the High Court was demanding that he hold a vote, a vote that would lead to his own demise before a government coalition is formed, which would thereby potentially could have a Speaker of the House not belong to the, the ruling majority of the Knesset, which has never happened again. Or it's never happened before, sorry. The Israel Hayom wrote about um, the fact that Edelstein's voice and the voice of his supporters were not heard this way. It says, in fact, it's hard to remember a crisis in which the gap between what was reported in the media and what actually happened has been so big. Has been so big. And that's why if you're reading Carolyn Glick and you're thinking, well, two weeks ago, Israel almost lost it all. No, surely not. Because you don't hear anything about it. You don't really hear about what happened. As soon as Gantz folded, it was all back to Corona. No one's dwelling on the fact that Israel's high court basically disregarded its place completely in Israel's governance 
and forced its will on the Knesset. This is what Edelstein wrote or said in an interview with Israel Hayom after the fact. He said the appointment of a permanent Knesset speaker before knowing the government's composition is like planting a mine on the on the road of the new government. A hostile speaker can stop the functioning of a government after he's chosen. A 90-member majority is needed to replace him. So that's, what is that, uh, two-thirds? No, that's the three-quarter majority is needed in the Knesset to replace him. And a significant reason is needed for that, meaning there's no basically no way to replace him. So, he says, if, for example, I was chosen to be the speaker of a new Knesset and afterwards a minority government was formed, I could topple it in two months. And I'm say, say, saying loud and clear, he said, I wanted to get a few more days to avoid choosing a hostile a speaker hostile to the notion of a unity government. And so you had the, the person that they wanted to make this temporary interim uh, Knesset speaker to then bring this vote forward, a vote that was going to destroy Netanyahu's ability to be prime minister. That's what they wanted to do. The person that they were going, they wanted to motivate for this opposed a unity government. He didn't want a unity government. And so if he was brought to the fore and there was then no unity government, this speaker could hold the rest of the functioning government to ransom, which is not the intent of the speaker's office. And so what did he do? He resigned. He resigned. Edelstein didn't want to go ahead and do this vote because he knew it would hamstring the future government and is against the, 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 the general practice. It's never been done before inside the Knesset. And so since the, high, the, the Supreme Court pushed him to have this vote, instead of defying the, the vote, he resigns. Now, what happened next? What happened next? He resigns. Then what happens to the, to the Knesset? Now, Evelyn Gordon wrote an article on April 1st, 2020, just over a week ago, that every Israeli should read about how their democratic right to an independent legislature was undermined by the high court. Completely. I've read a lot from her, actually, over the past couple of days, because she's a brilliant writer that has, has a great understanding of what's going on and has been going on for the past decades in this high court. She wrote this, Displaying the guts and smarts he honed against the Soviet Union, the former prisoner of Zion, speaking of Edelstein, came up with a brilliant solution. He resigned. He thereby upheld both the parliament's independence and the court's ruling. Resigning ensured that the substance of the court's ruling would be obeyed and new Knesset speaker would be elected promptly. That's what would happen. So he resigns. They'll get their wish, but... Uh, it's not going to be something that the court imposes on the legislature. We need to be sovereign, as even the high court said, as it was laying down these verdicts. He wrote, or she wrote then, a new, elect, a new speaker would be elected promptly, but the vote would stem from a standard parliamentary procedure. That's, simple, that's simply what happens when a speaker resigns, rather than a court order. And it would follow the standard parliamentary timetable, 48 hours after the resignation was submitted, meaning March 27th at the earliest, and more likely a little bit later, um, rather than the court's March 25th deadline. Yet, she writes, that wasn't good enough for Israel's imperial judiciary. In an unprecedented intervention into Parliament's affairs, the court adopted an unconstitutional solution 
proposed by one of their advisors. It appointed a temporary speaker and ordered him to hold a vote on the permanent speaker by March 25th. She writes, it's impossible to overstate how outrageous this is. First, the ruling flagrantly violated the basic law of the Knesset, which the court itself deems constitu- uh, which the court itself deems constitutional legislation. This law, which is the law of Israel, which the High Court is meant to uphold, not nullify, this law manda- mandates a single Knesset speaker, but the court created two speakers simultaneously serving Edelstein who by law retained full powers until his resignation took effect, and the temporary speaker, whose authority would be limited to holding a vote on the new speaker. Moreover, the basic law says the Knesset should elect its own speaker, but the justices appointed the temporary speaker, Amir Peretz. Why not? By themselves. Finally, she writes, implementation of the court of court orders is often delayed for various reasons, and the court routinely grants extensions, often lengthy ones, Yet in this case, rather than accept a trivial delay of two to five days, the justices effectively seized control of another branch of government. Anyone who cares about democracy should be appalled by this, and the fact that leftists overwhelmingly supported it shows that their professed concern for democracy is mere camouflage. What they want is a judicial dictatorship. It's unclear what would have happened next had Gantz not correctly concluded that Israel couldn't afford a full-blown constitutional crisis while the pandemic raged and and taken swift action to defer it. He ditched his bloc's former candidate for speaker, nominated himself, and announced that he would join a unity government. So it's very interesting what took place. Gantz decided that he wouldn't do it. He wouldn't go through with this. But what what the high court was willing to do and how on board the leftist media was was this with this seizure of control of another branch of government that was exposed it was exposed to again anyone that's willing to see this she concludes this way evelyn gordon does but if writers were angry at the high court before they're incandescent now whenever the next election is This will be a voting issue. If the right wins, it will pass legislation to restrain the court. And since the court won't let its excessive power be curbed without a fight, it will undoubtedly retaliate by declaring the legislation unconstitutional. In other words, the constitutional crisis has merely been postponed, not resolved, and it's likely to get very ugly before it's over. So that was from Evelyn Gordon. And just a very important article that people need to read to show what took place and how against the law it was. But really, this was just a, uh, a continuation of the descent of Israel's Supreme Court into lawlessness that's been taking place over the past 30 years. Now, this is important to realize that this is not going to go away unless the court itself has changed, which, Gans- which Netanyahu is trying to do. He wants to have just the justice ministry and the portfolios to ensure, as I said, that the next justices that come into the court won't destroy Israel. Now, destroying Israel might seem a little overblown, but it really is true, especially when you go back and see where all of this started. How did it get to a point? How did this court in Israel 
that's meant to have you know the three-part separation of powers as well, get to the point that it would be in the middle of telling the legislature what to do without a mandate to do so, and then telling it what to do so that the legislature could have a vote that would bring down the prime minister that half of Israelis voted for. This is crazy. This swing of the Supreme Court of Israel to this agenda-driven, leftist, lawless uh, state actually goes back 30 years to a series of measures enacted by the president of the Supreme Court back then, Aharon Barak. Now, this name is very familiar to every Israeli um, because no figure has been so de- 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 decisive at shaping the Supreme Court to his will than this judge. He led the court from 1995 uh, through to 2006. <clears throat> However, uh, his mark on the court really did start back a decade earlier in the late 80s under the leadership of Mir Shemgar. Now, Shemgar and Barak, they worked together to overhaul Israel's judiciary piece by piece. Now, in today's program, I'm not going to go into how he did that, but I'm going to discuss with you timing, the timing of this change. Because interestingly enough, at the same time that Barak, back in the late 80s, and what we see this past, these past couple of weeks uh, in the Israeli Supreme Court, it goes back to what was started and germinated in the late 80s with Barak. We need to see that. We need to see that this has been a steady progression and perhaps in, in maybe two weeks' time, I'll go through this progression and show you how Israeli law and the way that the court relates to it has changed because of the influence of this judge. Now, it's interesting that at the same time that he began his campaign to change the face of Israel's democracy, there was another a massive event in the judicial world taking place. Not in Israel, though but in the United States. Now, these two events are connected, so please bear with me. What happened in the United States and what happened in Israel are very connected. These were events that would change the makeup of both Supreme Courts and begin the, d- the downward descent of both of them into abject lawlessness. I want to quote from an article by our editor-in-chief, Mr. Gerald Flurry. It's entitled, The Hidden Cause of Society's Deadly Decline. The hidden, sorry, the hidden cause of society's deadly decline. He writes this, On July 1st, 1987, President Ronald Reagan nominated a highly respected judge, Robert Bork, to become an associate justice on the U.S. Supreme Court. Within 45 minutes, Massachusetts Democrat Edward Kennedy took to the floor of the Senate and demonized him. Robert Bork's America, he said, would produce back-alley abortion, segregation, censorship, and midnight police raids. And Mr. Flurry writes, It was a shocking, bald-faced vilification of a man who is obviously qualified and greatly respected even by many liberals. Quotes Bork then, saying, There was not a line in that speech that was accurate. And Mr. Flurry writes, Many people agreed, but the attack still worked. Senator Kennedy and others led the way for abortionists, evolutionists, feminists, civil rights advocates, and other liberals to band together and defame Judge Bork's reputation in an enormous smear campaign. They even aired television ads denigrating him. One senator said that they turned turned him into an absolute gargoyle, into a beast. Even the liberal Washington Post admitted that it was a lynching and many other liberals at the time saw what was happening too. The, the head of the Senate Judiciary Committee is none other than Joe Biden. And he said he didn't believe they could reject the van of Bork's qualifications. 
course, he would change his tune eventually. Now, Judge Bork's name has even become a verb to Bork was officially added to the Oxford English Dictionary in 2002. It means to defame or vilify systematically, especially in the mass media, usually with the aim of preventing his or her appointment into public office. So this is what was happening at the same time that Aaron Barak was taking hold of the reins, at this point still in the shadows behind Shamgar, but still the, the force behind him, taking the reins of Israel's Supreme Court, the Supreme Court that we see today. You had Bork being put forward by Ronald Reagan, a, uh, a, a, cons- uh, a originalist in the Constitution, and one with amazing qualifications. But immediately, in, in July 1st, or after he was, uh, or July 1st, 1987, he was vilified. He was lynched. And that prevented him from being nominated. Why was Robert Bork so demonized? Mr. Flory writes in this article. Why was his nomination to the Supreme Court turned into a witch hunt when it was obvious he was more qualified? The reason was that the radical left feared him. And for what reason? Judge Bork was known for one thing more than anything else, believing in the Constitution, the written law. He was one of the most brilliant constitutional lawyers this land has produced. He was considered a pioneer in constitutional thinking devoted to the text and the original meaning of the Constitution. That's what Reuters said back then. He was known as a constitutional originalist or constructionalist who believed in judicial restraint, the opposite of the activist court that, that activist court that took over the Supreme Court in America and developed here in Israel into the high court we have today. Supreme Court Justice Antonin Scalia released a statement through the Federalist Society calling him one of the most influential legal scholars of the last 50 years. The Society's executive vice president said Bork was, quote, one of our country's fiercest and most articulate defenders of the Constitution as it is written. That's why they hated him, Mr. Flurry wrote. Everyone thought that when a popular president nominated a brilliant, well-qualified man who passionately defends what the Constitution actually says, that he would be easily confirmed, even for a majority Democrat Senate. But in 1987, the radical liberals considered defending the Constitution a very, very bad thing, and they had the power to get their way, and he was defeated by the largest margin ever. And then Mr. Flurry writes this, the people at the time recognized that this was a watershed event in American politics. One uh, law professor said at the time it was, quote, the decisive moment in politicizing the process of judicial selection. That, quote, it poisoned the atmosphere for judicial confirmations ever since. Mr. Flurry writes it it poisoned a whole lot more than that. Bork said that what made a good Supreme Court justice was, quote, a willingness to apply the Constitution according to the principles that are actually in it, rather than what they call the evolving or living Constitution, which simply means the judges begin to make it up. The judges make it up. That's what he was fighting against, Bork was, in 1987, And he was trying to make his way to the Supreme Court. But the radical left at that time in 1987 
couldn't let him through. And at that point, and from that point forward, both there and in Israel, the law started to get a lot weaker. Lawlessness started to get much, much stronger. Lawlessness inside the courts that is supposed to protect uh, the laws, uh, supposed to ensure that laws are upheld, that the constitution's upheld, that the legislature is checked by the basic law or the constitution of the United States, either one. Now, it's interesting, you read this, and could you not say or read through those quotes about what happened in 1987 there in the United States with, with Bork's um, nomination being denied and the way that he was attacked could you not say, given that uh, uh, Barack's tenure in Shamgar's before him started in the late 80s, that this same lawlessness that continues to this day started back then? It really did. What we're seeing right now is the culmination, the culmination of events in the late 80s in regards to the lawless descent of Israel's Supreme Court, and the same thing happened in the United States. Notice this quote from Robert Bork. It's really interesting because Bork wrote about Aaron Barak. He spoke about Aaron Barak, of what was happening in Israel. And Barak wrote this book, The Judge in a Democracy. And Bork commented on it and wrote his own follow-up, a book review to that book in 1999. This is just one quote from it. Two other features of judges' constitutions, uh, judges' constitution requires notice. So he's commenting on some of the things that that Aaron Barak brings up in his book about his overall view towards uh, how judges should should reign or rule or adjudicate. First, judges may change the constitution at will, but the people and their elected representatives may not. The judicial creation of the Israeli constitution is an open-ended process, and Barak asserts that even without any change in the basic laws and statutes, judges may insert, quote, fundamental new principles, end quote. And then in the book, I guess Barak quotes approvingly of an opinion of another judge that said that the role of the state is, quote, to fulfill the will of the people and to give effect to norms and standards that the people cherish, end quote. That sounds good, but it's not the role of the Supreme Court. Then Bork continues to write, the question goes unanswered. If the people cherish these fundamental principles so much, why haven't they enacted them as law? That's how it normally goes. If the people want certain laws, they will vote for the parties on those laws and on the decision to make them laws. And then the, judi- the legislature will legislate laws and the judges judge based on, the, based on those laws. Not according to Barak. Not according to Aaron Barak. He said, or he approve- approved of another judge that said, again, quote, to fulfill the, the role of the state is to fulfill the will of the people and to give uh, effects to norms and standards that the people cherish. Then he ends, Then he says this, Not all people qualify as the people. New fundamental principles, Bork writes, require that, quote, and he quotes Barak, 
These principles require that a process of common conviction must first take place among the enlightened members of society regarding the truth and justice of those norms and standards before we can say that a general will has been reached that these should become binding with the approval and sanction of the positive law. So if you if you got that, and I, I'll leave a link to Bork's comment on the way that Iran Barak uh, ruled uh, inside the inside the Israeli Supreme Court. But he's basically saying that this common conviction that must take place so that laws can be decided upon takes place among the enlightened members of society. They are the ones that make the rules, the enlightened members. Then Bork writes, the general will, puts it in quotes, consists of the opinions dominant within the intellectual class at any given moment, so that the people who do the cherishing are their academics, journalists, intellectuals, and of course the judges. Judges will decide when a general will, will has ripened sufficiently and then, without further ado, convert the norms and standards into positive law. If that sounds crazy, it's what has happened in Israel. Where... The will of the intellectual class, which is the left, which is the media, uh, in cahoots with the media, which are the judges themselves, they decide upon what is or what should be the common conviction, what the fundamental principles of life should be. And we'll get into next time talking about how the creation of these basic laws... um, the laws of dignity and such, and how the judges have taken those laws that were never meant to be a constitution-like substance and then taken them to basically adjudicate on whatever they think human dignity is. Then I can strike down laws of the legislature if I believe they break with human dignity. Or I can tell the IDF what to do if I believe what they're doing doesn't conform to my vision of human dignity. It's no longer rooted in law. The Israeli Supreme Court is no longer rooted or judging cases based on laws in the books. They base them on laws of their minds, on what they think should be the law, on what they, how they define what is moral. And that's very dangerous. It's basically saying the judges can make up what they want, what they think are the prevailing thoughts of the enlightened societies, of which no doubt they represent and they can make them up. This means that the decisions of the judges are not based solely on interpreting the basic laws given to them by the Knesset, but rather they form a function superior to the Knesset. Sure, they'll use the laws from the Knesset when it suits them, but if the Knesset's too slow, why then a judge can decide upon what the general will is and force it on the legislature, or force it on the people. Now, this is a lawless spirit, and it's one that pervades Israel's Supreme Court, and as I said, it goes back to the 1980s. And it's the same spirit that was behind the denial of an originalist, constitutionalist, Robert Bork, in the United States. Now, back, I think it was in the early 2000s, or perhaps even up to 2008 or nine, something like that, when uh, Kagan was being nominated for the Supreme Court. She now sits on the Supreme Court right now. And she said that 
her idol in terms of um, uh, how to adjudicate was none other than than Aaron Barak. That's who she looked up to. And that comment terrified everybody. Well, terrified many people. Should have terrified more, considering what Aaron Barak has, had already done up to that point as a Supreme Court justice, uh, je- uh, Supreme Court president inside Israel. Now, after that, uh, Robert Bork made a number of comments about Kagan and who Aaron Barak was. And so we're going to go straight to the horse's mouth here, hearing from Robert Bork about what he thinks about the judicial policy of Aaron Barak and where it has led Israel. It's about a four-minute clip, and it was part of an interview with Americans United for Life back on June 6, uh, 2010. Robert Bork will be introduced uh, by the moderator. Dean Kagan at Harvard called Iran Barak her judicial hero, the man who's done the most to advance justice, democracy, and the rule of law in the world, end quote. And she said, quote, of all judges associated with Harvard Law School, his, that is Barak's, association with Harvard is the one of which she, dean of Harvard Law School, is most proud, end quote. So I would now like to hand it over to Judge Bork, uh, who is quite familiar with Judge uh, Rock's writings to give us his thoughts. It's typical of young lawyers going into constitutional law that they have inflated dreams of what constitutional law can do, and that usually wears off as time passes and they get experience. But Ms. Kagan has not had time to uh, develop a mature philosophy of judging. I, I would say that her admiration for Heru Barak the Israeli Supreme Court justice, is a prime example of that. Probably, uh, as I've said before, Barack may be the worst judge on the planet. For example, he has accomplished for Israel the feat of constructing a widespread and intrusive constitutional law without having a constitution. There's something called the, the Israeli Knesset, something called the basic law of human dignity. They did so in the middle of the night without a quorum in the, in the legislature and without any recognition of the idea that they were passing a constitutional provision. It looks as if that the uh, Israelis were passing a law that was inspirational rather than legal. But nonetheless, Chief Justice Barak took it as a legal doctrine and began to run with it. Now, he has the most extravagantly activist record that I know of. For example, he has actually said that the Israeli Supreme Court has the authority to judge the deployment of troops in wartime. Uh, where that comes from, nobody knows, but he claims it. He claims it. And in fact, the, the, the Israeli Supreme Court has exercised that something very much like that power. There is a fence being put up for security purposes around Israel, and the Israeli Supreme Court required an alteration in the fence in, in, in this location. There was no, no pretense that anything in the law required it. It was just a military decision, which the court felt competent to undertake on its own. Now, the record is full of uh, instances like that. For example, Barak is quite clear about whose values he's enforcing in the name of democracy. And he said that when fundamental values come into conflict, the thing to do is to look the views and the values of the enlightened. And the enlightened turns out to be professors, journalists, and so forth, all of whom live in one area of Israel, have the same postal code. And he's quite dismissive of 
other views. For example, he says that the moment the court can judge any, the court step into Israeli Israel Israel's life and reorder it in any way to choose sees fit. And for example, Barack does not ever face the question about what happens when all issues are are held justiciable. The wielder of power becomes the court. But we know now, as we watch Barack, that when the wielder of power becomes the court, there's nobody to say to the court that he shouldn't do whatever it wants. And indeed, the court, as part of its drive for power, has taken over the office of the Attorney General of Israel. So that uh, if if the court and the Attorney General disagree with the Knesset the legislature, there will be no appeal from an adverse decision to the decision adverse to the legislature. The government of Israel is foreclosed from an opportunity to advance its legal arguments before the court. It simply is told it may not litigate. Now, this sounds like a little bit of a, of a parody of a court, but I'm afraid that's exactly what Barack is. He is very popular among left-leaning act- activists around the world, including in this country. It's quite clear that the uh, Israeli court under Barack, who is, who is without question its leading figure, uh, is the most activist court I've ever seen. And so those were the words uh, by Robert Bork shortly actually before he would die, um, commenting on the most activist uh, court he has ever seen in his life. And this man was brought down by the radical left in America because of his views about holding to the original intent and as written of the Constitution of the United States. And here we have across the pond in Israel, at the same time he's denied, we have somebody rising through the ranks that is converting the Israeli high court to a court that is a law unto itself. A court that can adjudicate it, adjudicate cases based on the thoughts and intents of its own heart, the, the, the heart of its members. Which, if you've read the Bible and you've read the book of Jeremiah in chapter 17, that's incredibly dangerous to have the Supreme Court of the land that's governed by the heart of its members, who they arrogantly claim represent the will of the enlightened that's what Barack said, that the enlightened come to know what the social norms should be, what the laws should be, and that cases should be adjudicated according to that, not necessarily just upon the laws that are given to it from the legislature. And that's what we see right now. We see a legislature that's bumbling its way through, trying to form a coalition, and the Supreme Court trying to influence it. And so when the prime minister comes around and he says he feels like there's a rolling coup against him, he feels like there is a deep state against him. Looking at the way the judiciary has acted over the past 30 years, and increasingly so in the past three years, you'd have to agree with him that they are seeking common cause with the, the forces that want to remove Netanyahu from power. But it's important to remember that this was going on before Netanyahu. Why? There's a really important event that took place back in the 1980s that started this ball rolling, that just started the lawlessness of the U.S. Supreme Court, the Israeli Supreme Court, Barack's lawless takeover of Israel's Supreme Court 
and that massive shift away from the constitutional originalism espoused by Bork in the United States are indicators of a fundamental change that took place, that a change that you probably aren't even aware of. And so I'm going to leave you with a research assignment. If you've got this far in the program, that research assignment is to research that other event yourself. And I would like you to click on the link at the bottom of the show notes. And there's an article there entitled The Hidden Cause of Society's Deadly Decline. You really need to read it. Don't let coronavirus distract you from what's happening behind the scenes. What nearly happened two weeks ago here in Israel and what isn't going to go away. This problem is not going to go away. Is it just happenstance? Is it just coincidence that the Supreme Courts, both in Israel and the United States, took a drastic swing towards lawlessness in 1986, 1987, and 1988? Or is there more to that? Well, this article, The Hidden Cause of Society's Deadly Decline, will make that clear to you. Thank you very much for listening to today's program. This has been Watch Jerusalem. If you'd like to send some feedback, please write your emails to letters at watchjerusalem.co.il. Have a good week.